In the early months of 1899, six live water buffalo were loaded into crates in the Philippines. They crossed 7,000 miles of open ocean, then 2,000 more by rail. By the time their crates arrived in Omaha, only two were still alive, the only two members of their species in the entire continent. The water buffalo were put on display in a mock jungle scene, replacing the American bison showcased in the fairgrounds just a year prior. Thousands of new exhibits followed. Live animals, rare plants, weapons, costumes, all trophies from America's new overseas territories. As the fair promoters argued bitterly about this sudden change of theme, America was finding itself at a similar crossroads, questioning the type of country it was to become. I'm Ben Bohal. And I'm Nick Batter. And this is Neglecta. So we're at Coons Park in Omaha, and it's a pretty typical city park. Playground, open green space, sporadic benches, and picnic tables. But in 1898, this area was a much different type of attraction. The entire park and much of the neighborhood that surrounds it was the site of Omaha's first World's Fair. Hundreds of businessmen and workers came together to build the expo grounds, but the wild popularity of the event can be largely attributed to one man, Edward Rosewater. Rosewater drummed up local support through his newspaper, the Omaha Bee. But Rosewater also promoted the fair nationally, receiving the blessing of his friend, President McKinley. Thanks to Rosewater's efforts, in the summer of 1898, this fair was the largest attraction on earth. Its goal was to centralize and summarize a century of American westward expansion. Everything about it was a triumph, except, perhaps, its overwrought and unintuitive name the Trans-Mississippi Exposition. 1890s America for 1200. Showcasing the West, the 1898 Expo called Trans This River drew 2.5 million visitors to Omaha. Pat? What is the Missouri? No. Mitch? What is Platt? No. What is the Mississippi? Back to you, Tim. So, a, a pretty bad name, but the rest of this event was spectacular. Situated on nearly 200 acres, the whole grounds were lit by a new American innovation, thousands of electric light bulbs. Thomas Edison personally pulled the switch to illuminate them. The main promenade featured a dozen buildings, all with unique architecture, designed in the grandest European styles, complete with golden domes and spires and grand stairways and intricate columns. Inside these buildings, sprawling rows of exhibits featuring everything new and great in the country from the latest works of the country's best painters to new species of fruits bred by leading American botanists to marvels way ahead of their time, like a self-driving carriage with an electric engine. At the center of it all was an opulent reflecting pool, spanning seven city blocks, which visitors traversed on hand-carved gondolas shaped like swans. 35 Native American tribes convened on the site, holding the country's first ever Indian Congress. attraction and Rosewater's tireless promotion drew dignitaries from around the world. President McKinley considered it one of his most memorable official trips, congratulating Omaha for encapsulating and exhibiting the best aspects of the American enterprise. Organizers toasted him with a local champagne made from corn. 
The summer was so surreal and impressive that the expo site helped to inspire the fictional Emerald City in The Wizard of Oz. But as thousands of Americans were flocking to the exposition to marvel at Omaha's white city, others were preparing for war. The expo was celebrating the triumph of America's spread across the continent. In 1898, the nation was contemplating even greater expansion into that of a global empire. Business leaders pressured and implored the government for aggressive overseas expansion. In one of the earliest preserved recordings of an American president, McKinley presents a vision for America's dominance. The expansion of our trade and commerce is the pressing problem. Next in advantage to having the thing to sell is to have the convenience to carry it to the buyer. We must encourage our merchant marine. We must have more ships. They must be under the American flag, built, manned, and owned by Americans. Imperial efforts were undergirded by news reporters, whose exaggerated stories fueled public sentiment against America's global competitors. Simply put, Sensational stories sold newspapers. This yellow journalism became a profitable approach for Rosewater and his Omaha Bee. When trains derailed or supply ships sank, articles sprung up, imagining it to be the handiwork of Spanish saboteurs. And few newspaper owners in the country had the ear of national politicians the way Rosewater did. A prominent Republican, he was linked to multiple presidential administrations, A 1957 TV movie by CBS titled Ready Mr. Rosewater dramatizes Rosewater telling President Lincoln about his plans to move to Omaha. What's this? Oh, I'm leaving, sir. I thought I told you. Hmm? I'm being transferred out to Omaha. They're bringing in a telegraph from the West. Oh, I remember now. I've had so much on my mind. Well, we'll miss you. I hope you won't be too lonesome way out there. You've been in the thick of things here. Well, I'm getting married, sir, and I'm taking my bride with me. Well, and it's a sense you won't miss the war. You'll have your own private one. And with prominent people like Rosewater beating the war drums, America found itself embroiled in conflict with Spain, in battlegrounds at sea and on land across the world. The president, who had come to Omaha and ridden a swan gondola on a placid pond, ordered an entire regiment of Nebraskans onto a commandeered steamship for a month-long journey to the Philippines to fight the Spanish. At sea, Nebraskans passed Hawaii and Guam, where efforts were already underway to annex them for America. As the steamships neared the Philippines, it passed anchored fleets of the British, German, and Japanese navies, eager to claim any available new territory. Nebraskans beached near Manila Bay, just in time to see the final weeks of Spanish resistance. As the Spanish forces fell, America was quick to fill some of their colonial vacuum. Filipino resistance fighters, who had fought alongside the Americans, quickly grew uneasy. The tension exploded when a member of the Nebraska regiment, a young private from Beatrice, shot a Filipino soldier. Within hours, both sides were exchanging artillery fire an entirely new war had begun. The forces that had arrived to liberate the islands now found themselves fighting to become their new colonial power. And the prairie soldiers, an ocean and half a continent from home, fought furiously, advancing through miles of hostile jungle. The war started with a single Nebraskan gunshot 
led to a year of prolonged ground combat for the regiment. By the time their tour was up, no American unit had shed more blood or lost more men than Nebraska's fighting first. The fighting left an impression on the American mindset that lasted for decades. In the 1945 film Back to Bataan, an American colonel, played by John Wayne, calls on the history to rally one of his soldiers of Philippine ancestry. We're licked, Joe. Licked? When is a nation licked? Military textbooks say a war is over when the objectives are taken. But the United States fought your grandfather. We found the textbooks were wrong. Were they? You fought off the Spaniards for over 300 years. And the American came. And a handful of revolutionaries calling themselves the Katapunin took everything we could throw at them. Fought us to a standstill. Back in Omaha, the war and America's colonial adventure was capturing the imagination. Hoping to capitalize on this, Rosewater prevented the city from tearing down the old exposition grounds. He proposed holding a new exposition the next summer. Instead of showcasing the West, this expo would showcase a burgeoning American empire. Rosewater wanted this new expo to exhibit American military might and to parade the spoils of war. The main building of the expo was converted into a war museum, replete with captured enemy flags, bloody uniforms, and a large sculpture made from hundreds of battlefield swords and sabers. In other buildings, the flora and fauna of conquered territories were put on display. Colorful snakes, tall palm trees, and, of course, the two huge water buffalo. Special music was even commissioned, borrowing its style from popular war victory marches. My name is Dr. Stacy Borellos. I'm an artist faculty member at the Omaha Conservatory of Music, and I'm the education director for the Omaha Under the Radar Festival. Stacy is playing the Expo March. This is one of the first times this song has been heard in over a century. Despite the lofty concept, it wasn't long before the new expo began running into serious trouble. The buildings had only been constructed for a single use, and they deteriorated through the winter. Courtney Ziska is curator of archaeology at the Nebraska State Historical Society. Certainly all the ones in the uh, 19th century were built purely to be temporary. It was, it was purely only supposed to last the summer of 1898, so, but there were issues the winter between 98 and 99. Um, some of the roofs had issues with leaking and there certainly had to be repairs because these were made of green wood and like a staff plaster of Paris kind of material. So yeah, certainly no intent for these to be long-lasting. The Expo's animals, housed in improvised stables, frequently escaped. In one episode, a lion tore through a partition and attacked a bear in the neighboring pen. The bear lost its life, the lion lost its nose, and a handful of workers who responded received grave injuries. Meanwhile in the Philippines, Nebraska soldiers were having trouble of their own. After a year of bloody combat, the Nebraska legislature, which had deployed the troops with zeal, 
was now refusing to pay for their transportation home. It was left to private citizens, through hundreds of small donations, to foot the bill and give the veterans a proper homecoming. A song was even commissioned entitled, The Return of the Gallant First. The Return of the Gallant First has a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I can just tell he wants to portray all these different things to honor the, the soldiers. Back home, the soldiers were paraded through the expo, where they put on exaggerated reenactments of their battles. The American government, in support of the expo, went even farther, transporting refugees, the poor, and prisoners of war to Omaha from their homes in the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, and Guam. These people were put in costume and displayed alongside animal exhibits to entertain the crowds. Behind the scenes, another spectacle was playing out. Rosewater perceived his authority and vision with the Expo as being challenged by others. He fought bitterly with those who criticized the Expo's new colonial theme. And rather than collaborate and compromise, he began deriding the event, lambasting its other organizers and encouraging financiers to pull their funding. Rosewater's sudden opposition spelled catastrophe. The expo suffered low attendance, poor upkeep, and struggled to pay its workers. A mix of misfortune and mismanagement plagued the expo, and a series of accidents involving young children soon dominated the headlines. A number of toddlers suffered bites from packs of wild dogs and escaped animals. Another young spectator was seriously maimed when a war reenactor shot him in the face with gunpowder. A girl drowned in a freak accident in the lagoon. Another was put into a coma by a wild horse. Rather than increase safety standards, Expo officials responded by lowering ticket prices for children. Dignitaries like Chief Red Cloud and Theodore Roosevelt quickly canceled their planned visits as the Expo slipped into bankruptcy. The Expo workers who had been brought in by Rosewater hadn't been paid in months and simply began removing doors, bricks, and other materials to recoup their missing wages. As October drew to a close, the band played a final patriotic song, and the electric lights were turned off. The White City went dark forever. As soon as November 1st hit, so which was the last day of the Greater America Exposition, I believe demolition kind of started right then and there. The Chicago Wrecking Company was in town prior to the close. They were getting ready for it, and I, I imagine the first week or two involved a lot of moving stuff out of the buildings, because obviously you had all these exhibits that needed dismantling, and either the materials returned to the owners or sold. By April, and certainly by May of 1900, everything was gone. Over 100 lawsuits were filed against Rosewater and other expo organizers by exhibitors, suppliers, and contractors all fighting over the dwindling proceeds from the fair. Thanks to the quick intervention of a federal judge, the Expo's workers were paid first. Not even owning his own newspaper could save Rosewater from the public's outrage, and his political empire began to falter. Rosewater, the friend of presidents, found himself turning to underworld figures for support. The owners of brothels and gambling dens had made a fortune on the Expo's, 
and were glad to pay bribes and threaten Rosewater's rivals in exchange for a seat at his table. President McKinley would not live to see the results of his imperial efforts. Perhaps hoping to repeat his lively visit to Omaha, he accepted an invitation to a similar affair in another state. Shaking hands with a crowd, he was shot twice by an anarchist and died a week later from his wounds. The fighting in the Philippines continued for 14 more years, but no unit would see more action than Nebraska's fighting first. Following a hundred years of expansion, purchases, and border wars within the continental United States, American flags were suddenly fluttering on both sides of the globe. The country awoke in a new century as a fledgling world power. Having hosted three million visitors in two years, the fairground's last two residents remained through the winter. Two water buffalo from the Philippines. Considered part of the salvage, they were penned in a small shed alongside stacks of bricks and lumber. Until late one night, an arsonist, likely enraged as an unpaid creditor, burnt the remains of the expo to the ground, buffalo and all. No trace of the expo would remain. From Coons Park in North Omaha, this is Neglecta. A scale replica of the 1898 fairgrounds can be found at the Durham Museum at 801 South 10th Street in Omaha, Nebraska. This episode was made with the help of Stacy Borellos, Courtney Ziska, and Dave Wells. Original music composed by Mark Nickel. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash marknickel. And visit us online at neglecta.com where you can also download the music played by Stacy featured in this episode. You can also find us on iTunes, Twitter, and Instagram at Neglecta Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.